It's good to see each of you this morning, and uh, I'd like to add my welcome to that of David's, and to say I'm glad to see you, and uh, those of you gathered on the other side of the camera, glad to see you too, Um, and just thank you for your faithfulness, as always. We do this together as the Lord's people on the Lord's Day, gather together as best we can, and in um, that way, we're faithful and obedient. And we gather together to do a number of things that we're still able to do. We sing His praise, we pray, and we study His Word. And uh, we pick up this week where we left off last week. Let's all turn to Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read for us the whole chapter. And really, we've, uh, we've quickened the pace somewhat Uh, from the last few weeks where we took several weeks to get through chapter 1 then last week all of chapter 2 this week all of chapter 3 and then we'll spend a couple of weeks in chapter 4 but let me read together and then we're going to ask the Lord for his help to understand and obey but this is verse 1 of the third chapter of Jonah then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did it not. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for time together, for church, for Sunday, for our Bibles, for hymns to sing, and for people to sit together with as we are able, and Lord, for the means to meet electronically. Lord, may we not fail to learn the lesson through all this that we should never take these things for granted. Lord, may we not fail to learn the lesson of patience. And Lord, may we not fail to learn the lesson of your goodness through all of it. Lord, may that jump out of this passage to us today that you are a God slow to anger and abounding in mercy who relents of disaster when we repent of our sins. Lord, may these things ring true in a new way. 
May we be excited to learn, grateful to learn. And Lord, when we leave this place, may we be encouraged, be able to say it has been good to be in the house of the Lord. Thank you again for these things. We ask them in your name. Amen. Well, let's take what we've just read and split it into two sections. They're not equally weighted. More verses are given over to the second, but here's, here's our two categories, okay? First is Jonah's obedience, and that's clear enough to see in the first couple of verses. And then the remainder of them, uh, especially as we get down further, we'll call that Nineveh's repentance. So we've got Jonah's obedience. We haven't seen much of that yet. This is new territory. And then Nineveh's repentance. We haven't heard out of Nineveh because most of the things that we've read up until this point have not had to do with Nineveh, but about Jonah and the sailors and the sea. So when we look at verse 1 of chapter 2, we're looking at Jonah's obedience. The expression the second time is quite vague. There's not a lot given there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. We aren't told of whether or not it happened sooner or later because the last we read, Jonah was spit up on the beach. Um, That's quite a dramatic scene. And you would wonder, well, did he brush himself off and head straight for Nineveh? Or was there some amount of time? Well, we're not told. I would think, and then again, we're thinking here, uh, in between the lines of scripture but if you've been in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights suppose how much you've had to eat or drink I don't think he'd find much useful in the fish's belly for either eating or drinking so likely he's, he's very hungry and he's quite dehydrated and heading straight for Nineveh on foot would probably likely wind up in his death or a hospitalization, if there's such a thing. So there's probably some time of of uh, of, of wait period here, a time for recuperation, physically as well as as spiritually. It it would do us good, I think, at times to to remind ourselves of our propensity to read our Bibles like we watch movies. Sometimes when you watch movies, you don't really think of movies. In life as it's really lived. Sometimes we read our Bibles and forget about life as it's really lived. Sometimes putting yourself in the shoes, thinking your way through it, can allow you to interpret and explain the Scriptures more carefully. But that, and not to move on from this idea of the Lord's Word coming the second time, that amounts to a second chance. And I think we're all too often ready to take that for granted too. You've probably heard said, God is not only the God of the second chance, but the third chance and the fourth chance. God gives us lots of chances. But we should never take those chances for granted because we're not owed even the first chance if we understand our our Bibles correctly. And you can read through and you can read the story about the prophet who got eaten by a lion on his way home after he didn't do what the Lord had told him to do. And there are other situations where it seems the Lord had no mercy or no grace. You've got the man named Uzzah who was uh, transporting the Ark of the Covenant 
along with King David and they hit a bump in the road and he tries to steady the ark, touches it and is smitten instantly. He's dead. You say, well, the guy was just trying to help. I mean, you wouldn't want the ark of the covenant falling into the mud and getting dirty. Theologically speaking, the hand of a sinful man is much more a violation of that ark's holiness than mud on the ground, which is basically dirt and water in obedience to God's laws he placed on mud and dirt and water when he created them. So when you think of it from God's perspective, this idea of living our lives as if being good Christians, we should live as though our disobedience will be overlooked. That is not what this passage is teaching at all. But then again, how many children of God do you suppose are in the ministry even now because the word of the Lord came a second time to them? You might even know some of them. Where maybe when they were younger they had ideas of perhaps the ways God could use them, but for some reason or another that was put on the back burner and then the word of the Lord comes a second time and now they're involved in ministry making a difference and it's all God's plan to begin with because there are those who would like to look at Jonah's story and say wonder what could have happened if he'd obeyed to start with and I'm inclined to think it would have been a flop because there's something in that fish's belly that prepared this man to go in other words God has so orchestrated this story that the salvation of one sinful Hebrew results in the salvation of many sinful Ninevites. I just don't know if that message, as simple as we're going to read that it is, would have sounded quite the same if things had happened any different. So we're, we're, in, we're in high doses of the sovereignty of God right here. And this is, of course, God's business. So these things aside... Uh, quite a lot we can say about the word of the Lord coming a second time uh, there's still a lot to be desired as far as just curiosity and details we'd love to have more details about what it looked like when he was spit up and what he did afterward and how he prepared his notes to go face this massive city but we're just not told there may be something though veiled in the Last part of chapter, or verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. There's some instruction there too. And, and it has more to do with, with what you are not to do, than I think, than it has to do with what a speaker or a preacher or a teacher might do. This man had survived in the belly of a fish for three days. How many of you think that would be an interesting discussion if you're going to stand in front of a group of people? Let's, let's just say he's a shoe-in for a, a TED Talk, right? Um, would it be tempting to kind of, I don't know, use that as your foot in the door? Do you think people would talk about it later? Do you think after the service was over and after the benediction and folks are gathering around in restaurants, let's just say they're still able to do that, would they be talking about the fish story? Part of what Jonah had come to say? 
Do you think that veiled within this at all, and this again is speculation, rise, go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it the message that I tell you. Don't tell them the fish story, Jonah. Don't sensationalize your agony that I put you through for a purpose. Don't talk about your return to ministry. Just deliver the message as I designed for it to be delivered. Just tell them the truth. Give them the, the gospel in our context. I suppose that could be. Maybe all that's out of his system. I don't know. But when you get to verse 3, So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And then there's this break here. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. So the narrator interrupts the flow of the story to tell us something about Nineveh. And this is one of those places, in, if, if, if you're studying deep in the book of Jonah with a stack of commentaries, this is where no small measure of debate comes up as to what is meant by what is said here. And uh, a lot of them will go into extra-biblical historical accounts of the size of Assyria and Nineveh at specific dates, and they use this to try to slide it all around and figure out, okay, when this happened. And if you saw the program that the Smithsonian put out about Jonah, where they actually uncovered a lot of stuff in places that many of the commentaries that I have didn't know anything about because it was actually after ISIS blew up the place that they were able to go in and find a lot of things that actually match up with what's here in Jonah. But then at the end of the program, they say, it couldn't have really happened because Nineveh was this size at this time and Jonah wouldn't have been around at that time. It's about 100 years off. And it's all based on what is interpreted by the size and the breadth or the length of the time it takes to walk around the city. And really, I think for our purposes here on Sunday morning and God's house together with his word open, it's just to take what we've got and go with that. And what we've got is that it's described as a big city. Actually, an exceedingly great city. And then in chapter 4, we're told its population, that's a hundred. And 20,000. So that's no small group of people. And for this period of time, that is a big city. So we're good there. And then where it says that it was three days breadth in the ESV. Or three days journey in other translations. From just gathering the, the middle of the highway between the study. We're talking about 50 miles or so in circumference. So you're not way off if you would just think about Wilmington. That's 126,000 people. And uh, I don't know about walking around it, but if you decide you want to get from one side to the other at the wrong time of day, and, and school's letting out, it's going to take you the better part of a day or afternoon just just to get down market or university or any of those things. Or Oleander. It, it's a mess. Um... I think that'd probably be a good reference in mind. Side, you want to walk from the Wrightsville Beach all the way back to the river and back around again. Uh, take some sandwiches. That's going to be a while. That's 120,000 people. So, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his simple message. And the narrator's done his job in describing the city's greatness in order to make 
the actual task of Jonah look even larger. The bigger the city is, the bigger the task. I think the narrator's going in that direction as well. And then you might ask the question, well, what's, what's the significance of, of 40 days? The Bible mentions 40 days a lot. Uh, depending on your translation and how you're counting, it's, it's, it's over 100. Not always days, sometimes it's years. And usually, if you're categorizing the context of each of those, the pattern seems to line up with a period of, of testing or trial. Uh, you've got Israel's 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. Then in the New Testament, you've got Christ's fasting and praying 40 days in the wilderness. 40 years versus 40 days. Moses spent 40 days on the mountain in the period of Judges. A lot of these kings were in, uh, in their element for 40 years, which is basically describing a generation. But in this instance, it represents 40 days grace for the people of Nineveh to repent of their sin. Even though that is not specifically mentioned as part of the message, it's implied as it is anywhere else. Doom is coming, but there's a space of time. So let's make sure we understand this. It'll help us at the end. Between the announcement and the event of destruction, because Jonah says, in 40 days you will be destroyed, there's this space, a waiting space of 40 days between when he says it's going to happen and when it's supposed to happen. No conditions attached to the message. Nothing is said about what could or should be done for those 40 days. But there is a space of time to do something. That's grace. Um... Let's shift gears. That's, that's Jonah's obedience. Let's look at Nineveh's repentance. And we'll kick this off by asking the question, okay, they've got 40 days. What do they do? Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then attention is given over to the king. Reaches the king. He gets off his throne, removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, sits in ashes. Then he issues a proclamation from this ash heap. And he gives the specifics by decree of the king and his nobles. And look at this. Let neither man nor beast. You don't eat and your cows don't eat. Nor your herd or your flock. Can't taste anything. No feed or water. Every man and beast covered with sackcloth. So you cut out sackcloth for yourself and then you cut it out for your cattle. This is serious. Let them call out mightily to God. Sounds like the men on the ship, doesn't it? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Now that's different from the men on the ship. So this is Nineveh's repentance. The response to Jonah's preaching, God's message is astounding. I'll just... Go ahead and tell you this. There is no precedent in Holy Scripture for any city completely from greatest to least, least uh, repenting. All of them. Hasn't happened. This is the only case we ever know in history. 
the whole city repents. And here's where the mammoth size of the city that the narrator has given us enhances not only Jonah's task, but the miraculous nature of the city's response to his task of preaching the gospel, which is basically just a message of God's wrath and a space of time for them to do something, even though no suggestions are given. So they believe that Jonah's God is living and real and therefore turn to him with humble repentance. That's probably simplistic enough to be worth writing down. Their response, they believe that Jonah's God is living and real and therefore turn to him with humble repentance. And we'll get to this in a few minutes. There isn't anything that indicates in this record that they were explained to the significance of Israel's covenant relationship to the God they called Yahweh. Elohim, the general term for God, is used throughout all this discussion. It's clear that they believe Jonah's God is real. It's clear that they believe he's living. It's clear that they believe he can do something. And it's clear that their actions have changed drastically. We would call this repentance. Whether or not we meet the Ninevites in heaven, I don't know that's between them and the Lord and what they did with the truth they were given and whether or not Jonah went on afterward and gave them the rest of the story because it seems they would need more but as far as the repentance goes and the humility this is textbook case so how do they demonstrate this repentance there's sackcloth And uh, from my study and understanding, this is woven from goat's hair very loosely. You think wearing a wool sweater's itchy. And they would only wear enough of this to be decent. It was supposed to look bad. And it sounds like it was supposed to feel bad. The ashes were also a sign of mourning. They're not eating food or water. Now you would think... 40 days, no water, they are going to die. We don't know the extent of this, but at least when they started off, soon after they heard what Jonah had said, they're going in as far as they possibly can. And then with the cattle, and some cultures would do this, even in funeral rites, they'd bring the animals with sackcloth and ashes on them as well. But the king really is where it gets specific. He demands not only an outward show of repentance and mourning, sackcloth and the fasting, but an inward change of moral substance that requires turning from their evil ways and the violence of their hands. This is where it's, it's easy to understand that he gets how much trouble he and his country are in. The violence that the king speaks of that the Jews know of, that the world knows of at that time because of their brutality and their their military barbarism. It's a term that comes up over and over again in the prophets in the Old Testament. And it's especially dealing with big cities where urban living forced the trampling over of others because of the way everyone was packed in together. And it's usually the upper class trampling over the lower class. And there's really no other way to describe this. This is speaking of arbitrary infringement of human rights, from the least to the greatest. 
with the way they treated their enemies and the cruelty that was there. So while there was no written code of international law at the time, they had no treaties. They didn't all gather uh, in New York and talk these things out. There was, you can see this in all the historical writings, a general understanding of a common code of ethics. And this is where Assyria is the outlier and everyone knows it. What Assyria had done was made its own exceptions and they assumed that in conquest, militaristically, they were placed above lesser human genetics and therefore were entitled to ignore the voices of compassion or conscience. It's really no different than the Third Reich. They're superior, so they think, and they're justified in treating the non-superior in less humane ways. This is Assyria here. This is Assyria we know in history about the Third Reich and other examples, but um, great place for a depravity check. Don't you love the depravity checks? Very close to the roots of our depravity is this ease at which we conclude that our position entitles us to mistreat others. It's just the way we are. This little group of children on the front row here that belong to me and my wife, Corey, they're, they're a good test case for this. You just put them out in the backyard. And then if you want to just kind of make it interesting, me and your mother are going to take a walk and uh, you're in charge. And then you just come back and listen to what happened and how rules were made up as they went and how those rules were then bent or uh, amended or thrown out or there's a coup. Um, it's just the way we are. And that's just... Kids being kids, we laugh about. But as we grow up and we pile up things around ourselves, without the grace of God and an understanding of humility under His Lordship, this is where we live. That's just the way it is. And, and surveying the landscape of the troubles we're in right now as a culture, it's, it's right here. That, that's what that is. Something gives me the latitude... To take advantage of this or that or whatever. I deserve it. And it's quite wrong. And to differing degrees, it, it just gets worse and worse. And here's where you can... is borderline making this a true rabbit trail. But to watch now with the ability that we have to instantly respond whomever we are with social media and and the like you're able to see a culture that no longer takes for granted certain things that we've we've held in high regard if not everything for a good long while if there's no god and no cross and no jesus you don't see a lot of forgiveness from anybody you don't have a mechanism to forgive anyone once a culture identifies something that is wrong that they don't want anymore and will not tolerate, there's no forgiveness for those who, who, who do those things. And it starts little. It's with shout-downs and, and ostracizing. 
But the further it goes, you just get rid of what you don't like when you're making up the rules as you go. And that's, I think, where we find ourselves. Uh, what we need is what Nineveh is on to at the moment. Repentance, humility, understanding we're in trouble. And maybe, maybe God will relent from the disaster, which is probably just going to take on the ramifications of the consequences of the very place we put ourselves in. Let's move on. There's verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the end of the voice of Nineveh from the mouth of its leadership, the king. But what we've got here is that Nineveh, even Nineveh, seems to know that repentance does not necessarily guarantee that she will be saved. Listen to it. Who knows? God may turn and relent so that we may not perish. This is a very mature statement. In other words, their new behavior does not do away with the consequences of their old behavior. I mean, you, okay, go back to the children and the fighting and bickering. They've done something wrong. Correction is implemented. And you start hearing things like, well, I'll be good, I promise. In hopes that the promise of being good will erase the fact that they have been bad. Right? It's a very, very adult problem, too. We, we want to think, that, oh, all right, all right, hey, uh, let me be honest with you. As if everything past had been lies. But that's what's going on here. And then this would probably help. Just to make sure we see this from all angles. Every now and then it's good to think Jewish. Okay? And sometimes thinking Jewish will help us think. In some regards. Better as Christians. But if, if you're just tracking so far with where we've been. Uh. Nineveh's king here has just made basically all of Israel's kings look terrible. The man descended his throne, took off his garments, put on sackcloth and ashes, and prayed out for mercy to a God he doesn't even know. In humility. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, we get the, the snapshot of what Israel's kings are supposed to be. And one phrase in there says, "...that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers." Most of them did to the ruin of, of the country and up to their ears in idol worship. And then by the time you get down here to the end, having heard the king of Nineveh say what he just said in verse 9, what the author has done, if you're reading this as a Jew, you have to pretend, okay? And, and as a Jew, you're reading about one of your own prophets Speaking out against one of your enemies. And having witnessed your enemies displaying more character than, than your own country has over the, the, the long haul. The author has just stripped his country's enemies of everything but their mass of humanity. Forget all the, the barbarism. Forget the tanks. Forget the, the Navy, the Air Force. Forget all the heads on sticks. 
They're sitting around them and their animals in sackcloth and ashes, begging the Lord for mercy. This is unmistakably reminiscent if you're a Jewish person. That's why I ask you to think Jewish, because this was not going to be reminiscent to us unless we really know our Bibles well. But what has just been said, by the time you're done with verse 9, sounds very familiar to another very well-known prophet and the voice of God for a people who are ripe for punishment. But at that point, it's Israel that's in trouble. Listen to it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. I'm missing pages here. Hang on. There we go. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. Sounds like the Assyrian king, doesn't it? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is Joel 2, 12 through 14. So if, if, you're, if you're reading this for the first time, this uh, pocket-sized prophecy that you picked up at a newsstand is a good Hebrew. It, it's getting pretty hard to read. And then you get to verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So if you want to outline your Bible, some people do chapter titles. At Word of Life, we had to do chapter titles. You know there are a lot of chapters in the Bible. Well, for our devotions and to keep track of it and to make sure we were doing our daily Bible reading, we had to title each chapter. I had to write it down and turn it in. Um, good way to title this chapter is, When Nineveh Repented, God Relented. It's about as simple as, as you could get. God is not explicitly said to have taken any notice of any good work in what we read in verse 10. The fasting, the observances, prayer, ethical behavior, none of that's mentioned. What is mentioned is that He relented when they turned from their evil ways. When they stopped doing what He declared to be wrong, then He stopped the destruction order. Yeah, it kind of works a lot of the same way with discipline with children. You, you, you spare the rod, you spoil the child. We've all heard that. There's got to be discipline and correction. But when you go into the place where you're disciplining because of certain absence of certain things rather than disciplining or not based on whether rules are being broken. And, and our, the home I grew up in, I'm thankful to my father who, who would say whenever anyone asked him, have as few rules as possible, but make sure you keep them. That way you can understand where you are and where your kids are and you know when lightning's going to strike and when it's going to be clear skies. <laughs> But what does this mean that God relented? Because of all the big rabbit trails 
from this chapter, you can see reflected in many of the commentaries. You can just really camp out right there. What does it mean that God relented? And it even goes further that he did not do what he said he would do. You know? Can God change his mind? Is really the way most people put it. Well, here's my explanation. This will be brief. But it is fact that we can know the character of God only from this, his revelation that he's given us. You want to know about God? Well, you find that out here. Now, the men who wrote this had personal encounters with the Lord, spoke with him in ways we do not, but that's recorded here. Canon is closed. We believe that this is basically all we've got. So when we read in Scripture that God has decided not to do something that he said he would do, how are we supposed to understand that? And the easy way would be use something that we can easily understand when we just say he changed his mind. But then theologically speaking, uh, we run up against doctrinal theology that talks about things like the immutability of God, that he is not able to change. Closest thing we throw around in our language today would be the opposite of immutability. We talk about a mutation. I think we probably all agree that uh, mutations are generally not considered a good thing. If I told you, hey, meet me out at the truck after the service, I've been to the farmer's market and I got way too many strawberries and I need, I need to unload some of them. They're really good, uh, but they're mutated strawberries. Mutant strawberries, who wants some? I don't know about that. That sounds like that could be dangerous. A mutation is a problem. It's, it's where something went wrong. Cancer is a mutation. God cannot mutate. He can't change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. But when we're teaching things like this, and when God is revealing Himself in Scripture, we've got Romans to help us make sure we know the ins and outs of the gospel. But in the narrative, I'm not threatened at all by language that seems to be put in a place where my six-year-old could understand it. If, if he wants to know, okay, God said he was going to destroy the Ninevites, and then he didn't. If that's the question for Daddy, and the, the question was further, did God change his mind? I think I'd say, yes, that's what he did. He changed his mind. And God can do that within the boundaries of what he is and who he is. He is a God of wrath, and he's a God of mercy. And neither of those are in opposition to one another. Though it would seem in the world we live in, mercy and wrath are very much mutually exclusive. So let's just hold that for a minute. We'll get to the end and I think there's something I can use to tie it all together. So let's, let's say these things in conclusion. Uh, the focus of this chapter is of course the repentance of Nineveh. That's, that's the highlight of this chapter, chapter 3. But that repentance did not happen in a vacuum out of nowhere, right? Certain things preceded, it maybe even precipitated the, the repentance, the change of heart of these people known as the Ninevites. So a couple of things that we've already discussed. If you remember, we noted that the Word of God was the basis of that repentance, 
when he said, you go and you tell them what I said. And repentance is always based off the Word of God. There's no such thing as genuine, real, true repentance apart from the Word of God. It's always the Word of God. And as we've already noted, that Word of God preceded, was given ahead of the disaster, right? And provided a space for faith, for repentance. That space is, is grace. They don't deserve the space, but they're given a window And then in that window, faith was demonstrated. Indeed, we saw it. You can see it by the description with our own eyes. So let's take what we saw and just kind of form them into three points, three steps, which is not the Romans road, but it is certainly indicative of true repentance. And we'll see how it lines up to what we know of the gospel on display in the New Testament. So here's your three points. Number one, the first result or outcome of the faith and repentance is the acceptance of judgment as deserved. They believe they have it coming. Now it's tough to really feel you have contrition in someone who's wronged someone else when they won't even admit that what has happened is their fault. This is no problem here. You see it in their self-humiliation. There's no food, no water, sackcloth, ashes. Don't do that just to be cute. This is indicative of the fact that they now see themselves as woefully in a bad place and deserve it. The second result of the faith is the reformation of their day-to-day behavior toward other human beings. So their behavior changes too. Every one of them from the least to the greatest turned away from acts of violence against one another. So I don't know if you look at it this way or not. The first one has to do with uh, this way. I'm wrong with God. And then the second one is an admission that they're wrong this way with everyone else. So they're fixing both as a result of this faith and repentance to a God they don't even know His name, but they believe He's living and they believe He's real. And then there's a third. Third result of faith and repentance is the recognition of God's sovereignty to choose their fate. It's right there. They choose to believe that although they deserve punishment for their behavior, this God could choose to spare them. That's the way they look at it. Which is no different than the way the captain of the ship looked at it. Jonah, what are you doing? Wake up. Pray. Perhaps. Who knows? Your God might save us. So what they're saying, though they may believe it's hope against hope, there might be this God who would choose to spare us. So at least these people are looking at it as if God can change his mind. Though theologically we know God doesn't change his mind. So she would be threatened to put it in that language if it gets the point across without purposefully confusing 
anyone. Let's take it a couple of steps further. Because I think this is the better time to ask the question, how can God change his mind? Because usually we would be in favor of God changing his mind if it means mercy for us. But we're going to read in chapter 4 where we would not be in favor of God changing his mind if it has to do with someone else who doesn't deserve it. Receiving grace. We want to stand on either side of that fence and do God's choosing for him. Which is another reason why he doesn't change his mind and we probably shouldn't be able to anyway. But that's it. We're, we're mutable. We suffer mutations. I change my mind all kinds of times into how I would explain this to you. God doesn't change his mind. There is a passage in Matthew 12 Verse 41, and this is where Jesus himself mentions Jonah in a second context. He talks about the three days in another context. Here, he's talking about judgment. He says in verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What does he mean by that? That there's a better preacher than Jonah. And there's a fuller message than was delivered to Nineveh. But Nineveh got the point and you haven't. That's why they'll sit in judgment of you. And I'm thinking, okay, are they redeemed? Are they coming from heaven to judge them? Are they called up from Hades to judge them? Is this a figure? I don't know. But when Jesus says they had their chance and they took it. You've had yours and you haven't. That makes what Jesus says a lot more scary than trying to figure out what's going on in Jonah. Another time, another place, another people. But these people think that God can choose. And for ancient Israel, the story is at this point very uncomfortable. Though it seemed to have little effect on them. I think it's time to start switching the focus. What about now? And what about the church? Though we may be called the church, our days are still numbered. We still have a space of time before judgment comes. And that's not different. If we search our hearts, do we find that our faith and hope matches that of the pagan city of Nineveh? Not hardly, I don't think. I don't have any sackcloth and ashes. I don't know if that's the point either. I'm more worried about putting away the evil things. Our whole country is arguing over things that we've kind of kept quiet, but they categorize as evil. Should have been put away a long time ago. And it's such that it's even uncomfortable to talk about. It's the way sin is, isn't it? Who likes to talk about their sin? Anyone want to take a turn? Um, remember we talked about this one time before. If we just put on these screens, I don't know, take an hour out of your week and just let everybody see the contents of your brain. We'd all want to die. We want to think that we've got certain sins that are respectable sins. They're all things that God has promised His, his wrath against. And here's where I, I, I think it's best to answer you know, that, that question. 
can God change his mind? In Genesis, the very beginning, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. We learn there that death is the wage of sin. Can God change his mind on that? No. Then are all of us doomed? No. Okay. Where did God change his mind? He didn't. The place where we see his wrath and his mercy at the same place, at the same time, is on Calvary where he poured out all of his wrath on his only son to give us mercy. That plan was put into place before we were ever born. God hadn't changed his mind. It just looks like he has. And maybe for the child of God who is not yet a spiritual adult, maybe it's not good that we see behind the the clouds of his glory on his throne so we know what he's doing, when he's doing it, and how he's doing it. There's a certain about, certain a, a piece of parental shadow that's necessary, I think, to raise a child correctly. <laughs> that all makes sense. Can he change his mind? No. Does he change his mind? Yes. So it seems. I'll leave that to you to think over until your head hurts. But anytime you've got an infinite God in relationship with a finite human, there's going to be some things lost in translation that we call, proudly call, mystery. Embrace it as a gift of grace. So just like the days of Noah, the Word of God is sent ahead of disaster, creating a space in which faith may become possible, a space to do something What are you doing with the time you've been given? Where's your faith? Where's your repentance? Wrath and mercy met at the cross to give you salvation. How does God let Nineveh off the hook? At the cross. How does God send a fish? At the cross. How does God save you or me? Why are we here? Why are we listening? Why do we even care to pay attention? Because of the cross. That said, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for its truth, even if it hurts, or we've got a lot of thinking to do, and especially when we're shown up by a group of people that have no excuse, but seem to repent wholeheartedly at the voice of a threat from a God they don't know like we do. They didn't have your word, and they certainly don't know about the cross. We do. So Lord, why in the world do we persist in our sinfulness? May we take the space of grace you've given us and repent continually, daily, and then rest in the grace that you give us to live victoriously for the benefit of others. Thank you for this service, for Jonah, for your word, the gospel, for each other. I ask all this in your name. Amen.